listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. But now, it's time for this week's interview. Here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Self-Publishing Journeys for Monday the 11th of July. Now, as I mentioned last week, the podcast format is a little bit different this week due to my recording an interview with Richard Maidley. And that interview was recorded in Carlisle on Tuesday of this week. I got more time than I thought with Richard, and that's given me just over 20 minutes of interview, but we're running a lot lighter than we usually are, so forgive me for that. We'll be back to the normal podcast format next week. And so, on to this week's podcast guest. I guess most people know Richard Madeley for his work with his wife, Judy Finnegan, on television, and of course nowadays as part of the Richard and Judy Book Club. He's also the best-selling author of three books, and I think he's keeping his fingers crossed that his latest book will also join that list. He began his writing career with Fathers and Sons, then followed that up with Someday I'll Find You, and that was followed up by The Way You Look Tonight. His new book is called The Night Book. It's a thriller, and it's set in the Lake District in the long, hot summer of 1976. I caught up with Richard for a conversation about writing whilst he was on his promotional book tour during July 2016. I started by asking him if, after writing four novels now, he's any less nervous about publishing The Night Book. You get more confident. Uh, I, I found this, I think maybe it only applies to older writers like myself who've come to it late, you know. I mean, I started novel writing about, what, five years ago, um, kind of in the last trimester of my life, I suppose. Um, and obviously, I understood books because uh, I've always been an inveterate reader. Um, and obviously, we've got the Richard and Judy Book Club, which has been running in one form or another since, since 2004. And that involves reading... Oh, gosh, at least 60 or 70 books a year for the club and then selecting the list out of that. So of late, we've been reading both of us intensively. And, of course, Judy's a novelist now, too. So I suppose, actually, back in 2009, when I wrote the first one, it was kind of a case of, well, it would be rude not to try. You know, here we are, sitting in judgment of other writers, although we're never negative about, about our critiques. We just pick the ones that work, so we don't have to be nasty. Um, but uh, if, if, if they could do it, maybe I should give it a, a, a go. So I did, and I found it a very strange experience. To begin with, I couldn't think of a plot at all. Um, I'd written a factual book before my first novel, um, which a lot of people said read like a, a novel. It was called Fathers and Sons, and it was the story of my grandfather and my father and me and my son. It was, it was about, as is clear in the title, the relationships between fathers and sons. But there were some great stories in there, and they did read in a novelesque kind of way. So my publisher said, go on, give it a go. But as I say, for two years, nothing. Just couldn't come up with any kind of inspiration. And my literary agent and my editor kept giving me sort of basic ideas, which I rejected because I wanted to do it by myself. And after two years, I remember sending an email one Saturday evening to, to the both and saying, look, I'm, not, I'm clearly not a novelist. I don't think like a novelist. I wish I did. I thought I did, but I don't. So the next thing I do will be a factual book. Thank you and good night. And I felt so relieved when I'd done that. I got that monkey off my back. But it was a catharsis because the next morning... I, I was in the kitchen, it was a Sunday, I was, I was getting the Sunday lunch prepared, it was my turn to cook it. And <clears throat> I've explained it like this, it, it was like someone had installed a little radio inside my brain in the night and was now slowly turning up the volume. And I gradually began to be aware that I was listening to a conversation in my head taking place between people who were fully formed. It was a, a middle-aged father, his, uh, who I knew was a stockbroker um, in, in the city, uh, his, his wife, who was a, a would-be artist, a painter, 
but not as good as she thought she was. They're two sort of grown-up children, a girl who was at Girton College in Cambridge and a boy who was training to be an RAF pilot, and suddenly I had the period as well. It was 1938, and they were sitting around their, their breakfast table arguing over the, the Munich Agreement, you know, when Neville Chamberlain sold the checks down the river to, to buy Hitler off for another year. And they're, they're having a, a huge row about the rights and wrongs of this. And I suddenly realised that this was going to be my story. It was going to be about these people. And by the end of the day, which was a day filled with cooking and then running to, 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 to the, uh, the desk in, in, in my little study and, and making notes, um, and I, I was noting and cooking at the same time, I had the story. I had the plot line of the whole damn thing. And it was clearly had been there all along. But I'd been overthinking it, over-focusing over on it. Um, and it wasn't until I stopped and said, I can't do this, that that little inner voice said, yes, you can, here it is. It was weird. It was really weird. So that, that, that was hard. But since then, I found it easier and easier to, uh, to come up with the plots. When you do write a book, do you have very detailed notes beforehand? Are you working to a structure? Or once you've got that essential idea, that inspiration, yeah. do, you, do you wing it from there? I wing it. I absolutely wing it. I, I have barely a note. Anything I need to check, I just—I mean, Google is the writer's friend. No, no more long bus trips to libraries, you know. Do you have um, a very unusual search history? I certainly do. I, I must have. <laughs> God knows what people would make of it if they looked at it, but it's all in, in the best possible taste. Um, yeah, I, I, I basically have the plot in my head. I, I don't think I write anything down. I don't have post-it notes or mm. boards, you know, with, with bits of wool from one pin to the next. This is—it's all up there. Um, and I find that I write most creatively, uh, including the formation of characters and dialogue and the creation of characters as I write. As I write. Um, so I just have the basics. For example, with, with this latest one, the night book, um, I, I've, I've discovered as I write now that, that what I need to do first is to put a canvas up on an easel, if you can think of it that way. Uh, and in my books, I have a sense of place. So the first one was set in the south of France. I have a set, sense of time, past time, and that was set in the 1950s. The second one was set in America, mostly the Florida Keys, in the early 60s, the era of, of Kennedy. And this one is set here in where we are talking now, in, in the Lake District, um, in 1976, exactly 40 years ago. So I chose that because I was here then. I, I came up from London as a young reporter when I was 19, and I came to the lakes at the beginning of this extraordinary hot summer that, that people who are old enough to remember it will never forget. It was, it was on record. It was the longest, hottest summer that this country has ever experienced in, at any point in time since, since written records began. 1976, as I say, was the longest, hottest summer in, in living memory and actually in, in, since records began. And I came up here uh, at the end of May from my job as a London newspaper reporter to take a job at BBC Radio Carlisle, as it was then, it's BBC Radio Cumbria now. And I arrived just in time for the start of the heatwave. And I'd never been out of London really before, and I'd certainly never come to the Lake District. I was blown away by its beauty and its power, you know, the power of the mountains and the beauty of the lakes underneath them. And, and, and the icing on the cake was this extraordinary weather, because it wasn't just hot. It wasn't just sort of an extended uh, fine spell. It was the whole summer, and there were no clouds. Uh, it wasn't as if you'd have cloudy intervals and the odd shower, maybe the occasional thunderstorm. It was like Greece or Italy. And, and I began to think of the British lakes here as the English lakes here as being uh, like the Italian lakes. You know, Windermere was like Como. It was, it was weird. And one of the effects of that weather, uh, which and it had its effects all over the country, drought, obviously. Um, roads were melting, tar was melting. Uh, and here in the lakes, there was that obviously, but the main thing was the surface of the lakes were beginning to heat up, superheated they call it. Um, so by sort of early July, I remember the headline in the Carlisle Evening News and Star, Windermere is warm as the med, and it was, uh, and it felt it, and you would you paddle in the lakes and it was incredibly lovely and inviting, and you could swim way out um, from the shore right to the middle of the lakes, and it was still incredibly warm, and people were doing this way out of their depth, obviously. But the, what nobody knew at first was that just maybe two or three feet beneath this superheated layer 
it was still winter cold, icy cold, just above freezing. So when people dipped down, as you do when you're swimming, uh, got their head under and just kicked down a couple of feet, they'd hit this icy layer and they would drown. You know, they would inhale water and, and choke and drown far from shore, or they possibly had a heart attack, um, had a fit. It was really serious stuff. So on the local radio station, we began putting out warnings every hour saying, you must not swim in the lakes. They're, they're very inviting, but they're actually deeply dangerous because, because of this, this um, syndrome. So I remembered all this uh, last year when I was thinking about plot, and I thought, okay, I've, I've got my place, the lake's beautiful, I can write that, because it's, 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 it's a great friend to an author, natural beauty. I can write this freak weather, that'll be fun to write, and I've got this dark undercurrent, as it were, of people dying. Okay, so here, uh, now what? And then I put the character in. That's my canvas, that's the easel up, in come the characters. And the first character, and virtually the only one, um, as I started writing, was Meriel. And Meriel is this beautiful... 31-year-old radio broadcaster about to get her own TV network series. As I say, she's gorgeous. Uh, she's an agony aunt and a very good one, very, very popular. Has, has a network show but based up here in Cumbria. And uh, she has a dark secret. And that is that her, her husband, Cameron Bruton, who is twice her age and immensely wealthy, one of the richest businessmen in the country, she married him shortly after her father died 10 years earlier, in kind of a Freudian mistake. He, he has turned out to be, far from the, the, the charming, wealthy man that he appeared to be, he's turned out to be a, a deeply toxic uh, bully. He's a psychological bully, and he tortures her psychologically. Not, not physically, but uh, he oppresses her and makes her life a misery. And it's a secret because she feels it's gone on for so long now, and her career's gone on for the last five years, that if she divorces him, then this will obviously come out because those will be the grounds of divorce, mental cruelty. Uh, and her listeners and her fans will think, well, you're giving us advice on our relationship, but you can't manage your own, and she'll be discredited and made to look foolish. So she sort of feels trapped. And then one day, and I can't say too much now because we'll, we'll give too much of the plot away, one day um, she's embarked on an affair with a man her own age who works at the local station. She's fallen in love with him. It's not just a sexual affair. They, they are falling head over heels for each other. And he persuades her uh, that she can leave Cameron, and it would be all right, and, and they could manage the PR fallout. So they're out on their boat, she and her husband, Cameron, on this hot, hot, hot Sunday. Uh, they always do this on a Sunday, on Ullswater. And she tells him that she's going to leave him that night. And he just looks at her and says, no, you're not. You're my property. And if you leave me, I'll tell everybody about the night book. Now, the night book is the secret diary that she keeps that he's found. The night book is a, a work of fiction. Every time she's ex extremely unhappy because of the way he's treated her during that day, when he's gone to bed and they sleep in separate rooms, she waits till it's gone midnight and he's definitely asleep. And she takes this, this big manuscript, leather-bound manuscript, out of a secret drawer, and she writes an entry, a, a short chapter, if you like. And it's always the same thing. It's a fantasy of how she would like to kill him. It's a, it's, it's a fantasy of murder. Each murder is very different, but it's murder, her murdering Cameron. Uh, and it's, I have to warn your listeners that if they do read this book, um, these chapters, there are only a couple of them in there as, as an example of how she writes. They are very graphic. <laughs> they are extremely graphic. I mean, somebody said they were quasi-pornographic. I don't think they are that bad, but they're full-on full on violent. Um, anyway, he's found it and hasn't told her, and he's made secret copies, and he tells her this now on the boat. And he says, so if you divorce me, my darling, um, I will sue you, counter-sue you, and I will produce these disgusting pages as evidence of unreasonable behaviour, and your career will be finished, because nobody will want to listen to a so-called agony aunt who writes this kind of filth. And it is filth. He's, he's right to describe it that way. And so she's mortified. She's trapped again. What to do? And then all I would say now is that, and this is quite early on in the book, about the first third, a few moments later, an opportunity presents itself to her to get rid of him. 
to lose him from her life forever, to take his life. And whether or not she does that, and if she does, what happens from there, you'll have to read the book to find out. But she is presented with a momentary opportunity to terminate him. And, it's, it's a, and she realises, as she glimpses it, that it, this opportunity will last for maybe two seconds. She has two seconds to make the biggest decision of her life. Um, and the rest of the story flows from that. But Meriel and Cameron and the, and the, the, the young radio reporter that Meriel has this affair with were the only characters in my head when I started writing. That was it. And, the whole th- and I didn't even know what was going to happen on the boat that Sunday. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, knew, I, I knew roughly what was going to happen, but I, the, the, the detail of it is quite c- complex. Um, I think it works. But I didn't even know how that was going to work until I got to that chapter. So I very much wing it. And I like writing that way. I find I'm more creative that way. If I sit down and make notes and stare into space, I don't get very far. Whereas if I'm writing, it's like being in control of a car without brakes. You know, you've got to take that corner. Uh, right. You know, you've got to take the line. You've got to keep the steering good. Um, so I, I, that, to me, is the best way of writing. From a writer's point of view, you've had the most amazing set of mentors that any writer could could ever want to have you in mean terms the book of the book club. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, how much do you think that's informed your writing, or, or do you think that actually what you needed as a writer was always there? I, I'd agree with the latter. I think you, either, you, either you can write or you can't. Uh, that's certainly true. I would say that probably, I mean, obviously, the more you read, the better you're going to write. You, you can't be a writer if you don't read a lot. Um, and I've read a lot all my life, and that's accelerated because of the book club. Uh, I wouldn't say that, that the prose, if you like, of the, of the novelists that we've chosen has influenced my writing very much. But I think what gave me the confidence to give it a go was that I began to realise that writers are just like the rest of us. I think I'd sort of elevated them onto a, sort of a, a special plateau, an intellectual place that I couldn't dare to venture. You know, the old hack maidly, you know, sort of news hound as, as once was, and daytime TV <laughs> presenter. Um, that it wasn't a place I, should, I could legitimately go. And then I realised, as I got to know, and I think Judy felt the same, more and more authors, however great they are, that we're all the same, you know, we all go to the toilet and, you know, sort of forget to shave and whatever. Um, and that if they could do it, actually, maybe I could do it. Um, and the more I discussed with them their writing, as you're discussing it with me, the more I thought, yeah, I get that, I understand that, I, yeah, yeah, I, could, follow, I could follow that line. Um, but in terms of, of, of direct influence, I'd say that the, I mean, classics like, classics like Dickens, obviously, um, uh, have definitely, definitely affected the way I think about novel writing. It's a great story about Dickens and uh, A Christmas Carol. He did that in one draft only. I mean, almost all novels are at least the second, third, fourth draft. He did A Christmas Carol in one because he was, <laughs> he was against the deadline with his, his debtors. And he wrote it to clear his debts, otherwise he would have gone to Newgate uh, debtors prison. But uh, the, the original manuscript is in a museum in New York, handwritten, obviously. Uh, and that's the draft that they took the print from. And the only changes that Dickens made to A Christmas Carol, once he'd written it, was to make deletions. He didn't change a word add a word, uh, change the name of a character. He didn't even put a, an extra full stop or semicolon in. The only changes he made, you can see it in his pen, uh, are deletions, cuts, uh, to tighten the story up. And then off it went to the printers. And it's a perfect, shortish story, novella, isn't it? It's perfect. Um, so that, uh, that kind of blunt, almost journalistic approach to writing, I've always sort of identified with. Although I wouldn't <laughs> get this clear... You begin to compare myself to Charles Dickens. But you um, have written to order, though, haven't you? In your, as a journalist, yes, I've written you write to order. To order. Yes. You can't sit there procrastinating. No, exactly. You've got to get on with it, haven't you? have got to get on with it. That's a really good point. Um, and it's the same with novel writing. What I tend to do, I, I tend to put it off and put it off and put it off until it's almost too late. And then when my editor has a sort of a blue fit and says, what are you doing? And, and I, can, I hear the fear in her voice. That's what motivates me to get going and, and to write at speed. And I write best at speed. I always have. I, mean, you know, I, I know this from... The feedback I've had from employers in the past, my best features, you know, feature articles, papers like The Telegraph and so on, they're always written 
they always, they always look better when I've done it very, very, very tightly against the deadline. Um, but in terms of going back to, to being influenced by writers, I'd say that it was a guy who some of you listeners will, will have heard of, but it's, he's passing into history now, but Nicholas Montserrat, South African guy, who wrote the wartime classic, The Cruel Sea, uh, which was about his experience, really, based on his experiences, although it was a novel, um, of the Atlantic convoys, which kept this country in the war and, and helped win the war, at great cost to the, to the merchant navy and, and to the Royal Navy, at great cost. So lost so many ships from the submarines and aircraft. And it was a brutal, brutal war. But he writes about it with a kind of noble elegance um, that I've, I can't think of anyone else who writes in quite the same way. It is the most beautifully written book, The Cruel Sea. You'd, you'd think it wouldn't be. You'd think it would be all guns and metal and salt water and drownings, and it is. But it's a lot more than that. It's almost like a huge poem. Uh, there isn't a bad sentence in it. There isn't a, an, an, an ill-matched paragraph in it. It's just fantastic. His characterization, these key characters on this little, little warship called a corvette that's escorting the convoys and the risks and the fears that they go through is mesmerizingly well-written. Uh, and for me, and you know, I'm 60 now, of all the books I've ever read in a long life, in a well-read life, that's the best. That's the best written. And I kind of aspire to write like him in his style. I think I love his style. It's crisp and sometimes languorous, um, he can go off piste a little. Um, well, you have to read the book, but um, it's still in print. The Cruel Sea, Nicholas Montserrat. That's, that's my, uh, my benchmark. I sensed a, a bit of a change with this book. The cover, I, I came to Linwood Barclay through your, uh, through your book club. Oh. I have all, them all on my shelves oh, now. Right, okay. Thank you very much for that. It was a great recommendation. <laughs> but I, when I look at your book cover... I see, I see a Linwood Barclay for the latest book. Oh, right. Whereas the other books feel, have a more um, old-fashioned feel, I think. This feels like real yes. thriller positioning it's my, to it's me. My, it's, I think it's a really good cover. Nothing to do with me. I mean, my publishers came out with, it with their arts department. And um, I was okay with, the, with the, the covers of the previous two. I thought they were a bit feminine. I thought they, 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 they nodded slightly towards Chicklet, which the books absolutely yes. weren't. And I have had feedback from, from readers who almost despite that, decided to give it a go. We were very surprised to read that it wasn't remotely chicletish at all. But the covers looked a bit feminine. Uh, that was a publishing decision, and they must have been right, because both of those books got into the top ten. So, you know, the covers didn't, didn't, didn't do them ill. But they weren't, for me, they weren't quite right to, to go with the story. This one, we've, we've departed from the thinking on, on the previous two, and this one, I think, is a beautiful cover, mm-hmm. and it feels good. It's, it's embossed as well. It's, it's nicely kind of raised from the page. And I haven't heard a bad word about it. People love it. Mm-hmm. It, um, it looks... It's dark and light at the same time, which is actually the book. I was horrified last night to hear you talk about your writing process oh, and the yeah. fact that you write directly into Email. emails, yeah, yes, yeah, which, yeah. Which, is, which is remarkable. Mad, which is mad. Even <laughs> Judy was telling you to write in, in something like Word and know, back it up. So, uh, so when you do write, how, how do you write? Is it, do you need an office? Do you need quiet? How many words do you write at a time? I tend to write in the kitchen, either at our house in London or um, kind of it's a big open plan kitchen dining area in Cornwall. Um, I'm, I'm fairly okay with disturbance. Other than the TV, I can't write with the television on uh, or the radio. That that just destroys it. But other people's conversations, people coming in and out, you know, phone phone calls, absolutely fine. I can shut it out. And again, that comes back to my journalistic background because I started in papers in the era of typewriters. Um, uh, and my first paper, the Brentwood Argus in Essex, there were about twelve of us sitting on the paper, all with, with these old-fashioned nineteen thirties Underwood typewriters that made it a heck of a racket. And then people would be on the phone doing interviews, and the, and the subs would be shouting out for copy, and a cacophony of noise. I mean, you hear twelve typewriters bashing up. It hurts your ears. And you can't, can you, as you're writing the lead or the back lead or something, you can't say, oh, sorry, everybody, can you all be a bit quieter? I've got to, you know, you get the sack. Yeah. So you learn very quickly to build a bubble around yourself. 
kind of, as it were, put metaphorical cotton wool in your ears and, and focus. So I'm, f- I'm fine. I can write on a train. I can write, I've, I've written chapters on aircraft, you know. Um, I, I, I can write virtually. In fact, I've even written a, a page on the loo when I had an upset tummy one day and I was on the, I was on the loo. I, I was losing writing <laughs> Now, there's time. an exclusive. So there you go. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I was writing on, on the loo. So I'll write anyway. Um, in terms of the email thing, I don't know really how that's developed. I've, I've got a, a, a laptop, it's kind of sunny bio, and um, I use it mostly for emails. And I think basically, um, because I lost about half of the second draft of a book, which I put on one single email, kept, I kept opening the same email as I did the second draft for about three weeks. How stupid is that? And th- I'll never know why, but I, I sent it to my, to my publisher and it didn't send. It just sort of went zip and vanished and I lost it and I had to do it all again. It made me want to cry hearing oh, that I wanted, story. You must have just been oh, so you know, I couldn't believe it had gone and mm. it had gone and we mm. looked at the hard drive and everything and it just went. I wanted, if, uh, I, we were in a, in, a, in a hotel because we didn't have Wi-Fi at the house then. And uh, we, we were meant to be having a celebratory dinner. You know, I'd, I'd sent the final draft, and now we we're going to have this fantastic dinner. But no, I destroyed the final draft. And I it had had the waiter brought a revolver along with our drinks. I would have used it on my my, my brain. Yeah. It was just awful. Anyway, got over that. So now I still write an email, but I at the end of each day's work, I. I email what I've written to my literary agent and to, usually to my agent, uh, my, my showbiz agent as it were. So I know there are two copies out there so that if the same thing were ever to happen again I'll only have lost that day's work um, and furthermore if my computer's nicked you know, I mean, because yes, you know, if I don't do a printer what if, or it bursts into flame or something or if it's stolen um, there, everything I've done up to that day will be safe um, and that's how I do it and I, I know it's crazy but it works for me it's, I'm happy doing it that way You must have developed a tremendously thick skin being on TV for so many yes. years and, and writers often worry about the reviews that they get on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Everybody has their say these days. Does it, do, the, do the one star still hurt, or are you just abused to it now? It depends on what you think the motive is. It's a bit like being abused on Twitter. If you suspect that the motive for a, a coruscating review is the same as somebody being vile on Twitter, then it doesn't matter a toss. It just doesn't matter. It only matters if you look at a review and you think, damn, you've got a point there. Um, and that, and that, that can hurt um, because they're right, you know. Uh, so you've got to be open to criticism. You can't just be, as you say, thick-skinned, elephant-hided all the time. But I would say that the, the, the vast majority of... And I don't think any of the books that I've written so far would deserve a one-star review. I, I just don't. Um, and that's not conceit or arrogance. It's just, just making a, an appraisal of what I've written and looking at, at, at how they've done and what most people think about them. So I, if I see a one-star review, I'll approach it with some suspicion as to motive. Mm. Is it really a literary assessment of what I've written or is it a personal attack? Yes. Um, and, and very often it's the latter. Uh, and, and as I say, it's the same with, with Twitter. And I couldn't give a stuff. Just don't care. I, I don't block anybody, for example, on Twitter. Why, why give them the sense that they've, they've got you? Because they haven't. Um, I, I read people who use social media in whatever form it is as uh, a means to insult and bully uh, and, and belittle as rather sad people. I mean, if, if that's really your aim for the day, to write to a stranger and tell them horrible things about them which aren't true, you know, or make allegations which aren't true, then you've got a pretty... Pretty two-dimensional soul, haven't you? and I feel a bit sorry for them actually. Um, well, I do think that I do think we should be doing something about accountability on sites like Twitter. I mean, if you have to give personal information, which is an absolute proof of identification, to get something as simple as a credit card, why can't you be obliged to do that to go on a site like Twitter or, or, or Facebook? Why? I don't see that. I don't see that the systems couldn't be set up to do that, and I can't see a moral argument against it because the reason that social media is poisoning society so much now, and it's constantly being discussed around the, around the planet, um, is because it's unregulated. 
Well, let's regulate it. And that doesn't mean that you're in any way suppressing freedom of speech. You're simply making people accountable for what they write. So if somebody who sends a, a death threat, and I've had them, a plenty, um, uh, on, on Twitter does that, well, that's a criminal offence. And if their information is, is there and accessible, as it, as it has to be for them to get onto the site, then the police knock at their door, you know, and that would stop it happening. That would stop it at a stroke. Uh, and I just don't understand why governments aren't waking up to this because it's a, it's, a, it's a toxin in our society and we've got to cleanse it. It's awful. It's a fabulous achievement, having written four books. Congratulations Thank on that. <laughs> What's your game plan now? Where, where are, you, are you aiming to do a series or something, a Jack Reacher or anything like that? No, I've, I've got a contract to do three, and this one now is, is the first of the three. So I've got two more to write. I've got a vague plot for the next one. I think I'm going to set it in the Cotswolds, which I'm, I'm very fond of, and again, I, I know well, as I know all the locations that I've used so far. Um, and I think, depending on how well this one does, at the moment I'm doing one every two years, if, if this one does as well as the first two, then, uh, or, or better, then I might go to doing one a year, which would significantly change my kind of professional mm. life. At the moment, I'm a, I'm a kind of a very happy jobbing freelance. I sort of keep other presenters' seats warm for them. <laughs> Poor Terry Wogan, of course, I sat in for him, and now I sit in for Michael Bohr on the, on the Radio 2 Sunday Brunch. I sit in on uh, The Right Stuff for Matthew Wright when he's not there. I do the one show when, when Matt's not there sometimes. Uh, and other, other bits and bobs, and freelance writing as well. And, and I, I love it. It's fun. But if this, if this one works, and I think, OK, that's three in a row... I don't want to tempt fate because I'm going to touch this table here. Mm. Um, uh, maybe I should be focusing more on, on writing now. I mean, I mean, I'm only 60, so I've probably got a good 10 years in it. And maybe I would become more of a novelist than I am at the moment. Thank you for speaking to us today. Oh, good luck with the launch. It's a great book. That's and cool. It's lovely you. hearing you speak last night. Cheers. OK, thanks. Nice to see you. Thank you for listening to this week's Self-Publishing Journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week. <laughs>